Haitian migrants have gathered at our border in the thousands, and this week, a senior U.S. diplomat in Haiti resigned to protest America's treatment of Haitians. Did you know that this mass migration and crisis are at least partially related to Haiti's 2010 earthquake? And did you know that Haiti has not yet recovered from its calamitous 2010 earthquake? The one that killed more than 200,000 Haitians. A salient example of Haiti's struggle to recover from that earthquake is Haiti's National Palace, the official residence of Haiti's president, which used to be compared to the White House and even the Buckingham Palace in its opulence. It was destroyed in the 2010 earthquake. And as of today, September twenty-four, two thousand twenty-one, more than a decade later, it has yet to be rebuilt. Hey there, news peelers! Today is September twenty-four, two thousand twenty-one. And this is Adele with Appeal Dot News, a history podcast for our news and current affairs. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. <laughs> oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh. Sometimes it offends, and sometimes it just it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of this stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink, or both, and let's get into it. According to the New York Times, inhumane and counterproductive deportations of Haitian emigrants back to Haiti, a country reeling from a political crisis and a deadly earthquake last month, is the reason that Daniel Foot, the senior American envoy to Haiti, offered for his resignation this week. He also lambasted America's policy towards Haiti, which he described as a cycle. Of international political interventions in Haiti that has consistently produced catastrophic results. U.S. House Representative Andy Levin, a Democrat from Michigan who chairs the House Haiti Caucus, added this: "The Haitian people are crying out for the opportunity to chart their own country's future, and the United States is ignoring their pleas." The fundamental question. That should be asked is, why are Haitians at our border in such large numbers? Well, some Haitian migrants fled their country after President Jovenel Moïse's assassination in July, an event that, according to the Wall Street Journal, has put the country on the brink of anarchy. But there's yet another explanation: that the overwhelming majority of Haitians in Del Rio left Haiti. After the 2010 earthquake, many went to Chile and Brazil, which back then had relatively lenient immigration policies. But the COVID-19 pandemic has strained economies of those South American nations. So now Haitians are coming to America, some all the way from Chile and Brazil, for jobs and for better lives. While news media will dissect America's immigration politics and policies. We were curious about an entirely different question: What happened to the billions and billions of donations that went to Haiti after the 2010 earthquake? Didn't the NGOs, the non-governmental organizations that were so active in Haiti, improve Haiti's economy, create jobs for Haitians, so that Haitians wouldn't have to leave their country for other countries, such as Chile and Brazil? If you remember, former President Bill Clinton, actors George Clooney and Sean Penn were all involved in the Haiti recovery effort. Again, I ask, 
What happened to all the money they raised? To all that work? To better understand the history of NGOs in Haiti and what roles they played in Haiti's recovery after the 2010 earthquake, we spoke with Mr. Mark Scholler, who is a professor of anthropology and nonprofit and NGO studies at Northern Illinois University and its affiliate university in Haiti. Professor Scholler has been studying NGOs in Haiti since the beginning of the century, and he was on the ground in Haiti just eight days after its calamitous 2010 earthquake. He has written and co-edited several books about Haiti and NGOs, including a book titled Humanitarian Aftershocks in Haiti. He has also produced the following documentary, Poto Mouton, Haitian Women, Pillars of the Global Economy. A link to Professor Scholler's academic homepage, which includes a list of his many publications and accomplishments, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Scholler and I peel the history behind this news. This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Scholler, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. The August 14th earthquake in Haiti and its aftermath have been devastating for Haitians. How does this earthquake compare to the 2010 earthquake? Yeah, so there are two earthquakes um, in, in August 14th, one in, uh, off the coast of Nice and one uh, by Saint Louis de Sud. Uh, so there are two earthquakes. In terms of magnitude, are those two uh, are, are are those two earthquakes uh, geographically proximate? Are they close yeah, to each other? They're, okay, they're, they're close to each other, right? Um, they're um, you know six point nine to seven point two on the Richter scale. Uh, wow. The Port-au-Prince earthquake in two thousand ten was seven, so about the same magnitude. Um, so um, you know, it, it was they're basically. Uh, unused kinetic energy that the 2010 earthquake did not touch. Uh, so seismologists in Haiti and elsewhere were aware of two fault lines, the Emrakeo fault, which is the south part of Haiti, and the septrennial uh, fault line, which is on the north of Haiti. So Haiti, if you look at the map, it goes like this. Um, yeah. So the north side, the south side. So and it's very high mountains. There's uh, lots of kinetic energy stored up in in these plates that are that are moving, and so what they discovered in 2010, it was actually a subfault. Um, so, ge uh, geologists was a subfault. Is that what you right. said? Ge geologists were saying another big one's coming. And after you know, 2010, yeah, because uh, the, the the main fault line, the Emmanuel fault line, was uh, was basically on, on on you know it was untouched. Like there was still energy to be. Uh, Release kinetic energy, as you termed it, mm -hmm. is, 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 yeah. is, is itching to get be released. Right. The impact. So, go ahead. Right. So, I mean, sort of the impact. Uh, so, as I'm sure you've heard before, you know, there's no such thing as a natural disaster. There are natural events. Um, they become disasters. No, I've never. Oh, I see what you're saying. They become disasters. So yes. So, they're natural events like hurricanes, wildfires. Um, droughts, uh, tornadoes, and earthquakes, uh, these and tsunamis that earthquakes cause, these are natural events, they're hazards. Uh, so to become a disaster requires vulnerability, human action, either conscious political uh, policy making, economic choices, livelihood strategies, built up, you know, pent up over centuries as uh, colonialism, for example, the way that Haiti is in the Sugar Islands, uh, uh, that uh, resources were taken away from the island to send to France. Um, so the, the, the disaster, the magnitude of disasters is a, is a function of the fault lines, the, the geological hazard and the human produced vulnerability. So in terms of the impact, 
we can talk about the human impact later, but uh, that's something to be to be noted. Um, this distinction, sir, that you're making, Professor Scholler, between the two terms, natural disaster um, and a natural event, this is not something that's talked about much in the news. You don't hear it. Is this more in academic circles or is this something that's sort of well talked about in more well, specialty circles? I'm fascinated. Sure. This, this It makes so much sense. Yeah, uh, it's it's um, so it's it is an academic discussion, but it's also practitioners, people that are working in uh, disaster risk reduction. The United Nations has an entire uh, section on, on DRR, disaster risk reduction. Um, Cuba, neighboring island, has uh, done a lot of mitigation, uh, as well as Japan, endemic earthquake country. Um, so you have examples of two different types of uh, models. Um, but Cuba, for example, just across the Windward Channel from Haiti, does a very good job uh, of preparing uh, for natural for natural hazards. Um, Is so, Cuba uh, also uh, earthquake prone? Yeah, um, it's. Uh, but if you look at like, so from what I understand, I'm not a I'm not a geologist, um, so you might want to verify this. But from what I was told, approximate indicator of how powerful the the size the, the tectonic plates and the energy is is just how roughly how big the mountains are because that's like a that's how that's how that's how fast they're pushing that's how that's how recent they're pushing so the highest mountain ranges in the caribbean are on the hispaniola island in the dominican republic that's where the, the, there's the most force of uh, these plates pushing up against each other interesting and but haiti isn't and haiti is in hispaniola island it's in the western third yeah. So, uh, yeah, so it is earthquake prone for sure. Uh, uh, Santiago and Guantanamo, the provinces on the eastern part of Cuba, are, 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 have had regular you know, earthquakes. Um, but um, it, hurricanes are the natural hazard most of uh, interest to, you know, because you can prepare. Yeah, because you see them coming. Uh, yeah. So the thing we could do with earthquakes is to mitigate, is to build better uh uh while you have like the whole city of los angeles and uh uh san francisco they're 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 exa living examples of humans deciding oh this can happen so let's build let's create building codes to, to for buildings to withstand and you know the kyoto um the hyogo framework uh, in, in uh disaster really in in japan is the experience of the japanese is yeah these are going to happen so we can't prevent them so what we'll do is we'll build in such a way that, that that structures don't fall and kill people um so that's uh that's 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 what you can do for an earthquake this is going to sound like a naive question well because it is uh haiti has had a long history of earthquakes right going mm -hmm. back to the 1700s uh mm -hmm. was the 2010 earthquake or a surprise were they not prepared for it so uh so it's, I mean, one of the biggest earthquakes that struck Haiti in the past was uh, 1842. 1842. In uh, uh, Cap uh, it's, uh, it was, it's Haiti's most uh, biggest north. Uh, it was the capital for a while of a, of a divided Haiti. Uh, and there, there, the UNESCO sites of the palace, uh, and the fort built by King Henri Christophe are in near Cap Haitien in the north. So that earthquake leveled uh, or damaged uh, the, the palace of Saint Souci, um, and so it was. It definitely had an impact on the country. It, it, it um, was a shift in terms of uh, how the government related to its people. Um, so there is a there is a muscle memory of earthquakes, but there hadn't been a major one since then. Um, well, so they had, they had not been a major one since 1842. Uh, it, of this of this magnitude, of course, there's there's tremors. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, so the 1700s, uh, it was not Haiti. It was it was Saint Domingue. It was French colony. Um, and exactly. So it, the and uh, the like the the model for the Haitian independence was to uh, to disperse the population. And not to have it concentrated in cities like Port-au-Prince, and so the impact of a disaster uh, 
is lessened because it's not proximate to the city areas. You know, so you don't have a, a big, like Port-au-Prince was leveled in 2010. It's a lot of concrete and a lot of people. High density. That. Yeah. And it was, so that's, that is why you see a lot lower death toll in 2021 compared to 2010, for example. So, I mean, it was not, a, and the French did not teach. It was not in their interest to do, to leave anything behind for people. It was, it was set up to enrich the planters. The, the, the sort of explode as much as you can for, for, yep, that for, was, that for was, the mother country. That was deliberately the model of plantation slavery. I mean, have any areas of Haiti uh, ever been abandoned after an earthquake? And I don't mean just city blocks. I mean like towns or something. Yeah, I don't. I don't actually know. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, the the Haitian Revolution was about abandoning cities. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't. I have, that's a very good question. I'm going to ask another question that it could be really the subject of a whole book. What, what I want to know is what sort of, what was the management like after the 2010 earthquake? Management, yeah. mismanagement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that is the subject of lots of books, including one we're going to discuss. Uh, so, uh, so remember that the natural hazard did not kill. It was the disaster. It was a vulnerability. So, you have a you have an earthquake that's way more powerful in Chile several weeks later, and you know a much smaller death toll because it was you know, not close to an urban center. That September two thousand ten in Canterbury, New Zealand, uh, an earthquake as powerful as Haiti's two thousand ten earthquake, um, as close to an urban center, did not kill but one person. So the difference is wow, building codes. How did so? How many people um, died in 2010, by the way? There, that's a figure we don't really know. Um, estimates, really? Are, estimates range from, you know, uh, like 80,000 to 316. Most people cite a figure of around 230,000. The lack goodness. of precision reflects the inability of the state to do that kind of death count. And, you know, people not having ID cards. Um, so... Uh, this is this is an issue that that you know is important to discuss. I think also, you know, so how did the earthquake of 2010 become the killer that it was? It was because of neoliberal economic policies that bled the 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 resources of rural Haiti dry, so that people were starved and moved and flooded to the cities, um, and they flooded to the cities and you know created homes for themselves um, out of cheap building materials uh, that they could find, you know, a lot of higher percentage of sand than concrete. And there's is no kind of like shanty towns. Is that they are, they are shanty towns. Okay. Uh, I don't like to use the word slums. I, you know, shanty towns uh, in French, they call them bidonvilles. Um, so those are, that's where people, you know, who are one generation removed from being peasant farmers uh, who lost their livelihoods because of destruction of the, the pig population as a result of USAID, the neoliberal economic policies that uh, flooded the country with, with uh, subsidized rice and, you know, at the time of harvest, uh, opening up Haiti to foreign imports. Um, that a, a generation following the, the, the fall of Duvalier in 86, uh, you, you you have Port-au-Prince population quadruples as a, as a result. So where are they going to live? They so they, they push up to the side of the mountains um, and they gather where they can. So they build on top of one another in structures that are affordable. Because you because the state also because of neoliberalism, the state cannot does not provide education, health care, um, and other basic services like water and electricity are, are costly. So families have they have a limited means. Um, they economize where they can and building materials where they economize. And you didn't have effective state monitoring system. So you have laws and they're not enforced because, you know, the, you do have a state that had been hollowed out by neoliberal financial policies, privatization, uh, and creation of a parallel state or of NGOs. Wow. So these neoliberal policies and uh, the increase in of the role of private entities in Haiti 
after the fall of Duvalier, which I guess was meant to actually boost its economy, but it, it had it had uh, sort of a negative impact. You import more, and in a small country, you're actually increasing competition for regular producers. They can't. Uh, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, I mean, it was sold as a as a growth strategy. Yeah, I'm not sure that it was. An, I mean. I'm not Milton Friedman, nor am I the World Bank chair. I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. believe intentions are important to discuss. The impacts are what we can discuss because that's what yeah. we can actually document. Yeah. The impact was very certainly to destroy national production because in the United States, we have a billion dollar rice subsidy every year. So even if you don't have the irrigation of the roads, the electricity uh, that we have in the United States based on a tax base that we have, that Haiti was prevented from having because of a debt that Haiti paid France uh, and paid off for 120 years. Um, even if you, do, if, there's no level playing field. So you open the, you, you force to re, force Haiti to reduce its tariffs and you have immediately um, competition and you, Haitian farmers can never compete with uh, subsidized rice or like the, you know, this is the, the, the buildup of, of colonialism uh, that you have resources drained from places like Haiti, Jamaica, other places, um, Latin America, and they enrich the United States and Western Europe. Um, so those imperial countries and colonial countries have, the, have basically the human capital, literally human lives being stolen as, as enslaved people, uh, but also the, the resources being pulled. So even if you don't have a subsidy like the United States does in our farm bill, there is no any kind of competition is going to be woefully lopsided, and, and small farmers are going to lose. Cor corporate agribusiness is was going to is going to win every time. So in 2010, uh, for the many reasons, some of which that you shared with us, population of Port-au-Prince has increased significantly. High density. There's an earthquake. It's a natural event, but it becomes a natural disaster because of poor building code. So that's the initial shock. That's the initial sort of devastation that occurs. Did the earthquake event itself follow with um, fires, floods, and, and inability to rescue? Did that increase the death toll? Well, like a, so the weak, the hollowed out state um, and the lack of resources and the fact that the, the devastation was headquartered in or centered in the government headquarters of Fort Prince meant that the, the, the response was, was difficult. The roads being destroyed um, literally meant the, the difference between life and death. Like if you, can't, if you can rescue someone under a rubble, but you can't get them to a hospital, they will not survive. You know, so that, that there's a lot yeah. of people that died after because of the uh, inability to, to offer emergency life-saving services. So uh, that, that's an element as well. Okay. Uh, why don't we take a short break and talk about the recovery from the 2010 earthquake a little more in depth. <music> Professor Scholler, you have a 2016 book with a very suggestive title, Humanitarian Aftershocks in Haiti. What is this book about? This book is about the ways in which the aid itself, uh, following 2010, the earthquake, uh, represented uh, another series of, uh, another disaster that people had to contend with. You know, it was not just that the earthquake uh, itself was uh, deadly, but the, the response was what uh, Raoul Peck called fatal assistance, uh, Haitian Fatal assistance? Yeah, uh, the, his uh, fatal assistance, uh, assistance mortelle in French. Uh, Raoul Peck, Haitian filmmaker, award-winning, you know, Academy Award-winning filmmaker at that. Uh, so. How was it fatal uh, assistance? So, so here it is. Um, the quickest way I can say this is that we were asking the question, where did the money go? A lot of journalists, activists, and policy Yeah, a lot of money. It, I, I remember there were fundraising in America. You would see it on TV, right? Right. Yeah, Bill Clinton, uh, George Clooney had a telethon. The biggest celebrity yes. is Sean Penn. He went uh, there, yeah. Yeah, so 
uh, three over three billion dollars in in private donations. Uh, three billion. Of, wow. Yeah, pledges of three of thirteen billion dollars from official sources like countries, United States, Venezuela, uh, groups like the United Nations, etc. So that's sixteen billion. That that's got to yeah. be a huge. Got to be very size. It, yeah, it's 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 huge. Um, and um. So that's where that's where some of the questions were, like the gotcha journalism, and the, the response in the beginning was to is to bite back, um, and you know, people living in. So let me put it as quickly as I can. Um, so the earthquake killed an untold number of people, you know, mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands, let's say, uh, and immediately following, people are traumatized and. In need of life-saving surgeries, uh, food, shelter, water, uh, everything. Um, so, how that aid was delivered uh, reinforced the Haitian dependency on international aid. It um, so it divided families. It disrupted solidarity networks. It created new leaders, and it even increased violence against women. So, let me explain how. So, if you were to give aid to people. Um, uh, so what? So the reason why the question, where did the money go, and the response to humanitarian agencies, uh, this is a is a self fulfilling like it's a cycle. So the more international NGOs have to account for the money, the more they make decisions based on the photo op. So they had to take based pictures. on the photo op. We're not right. talking about the actual effect, positive effect. We're talking about the photo op. Because that's what they have. I mean, that's what they, it, it, to use the language of, of cap, you know, capitalism, it is a market. Um, so they were selling images um, before the earthquake, before the aid came, um, and then after. Like, as a, like, look, you, you have us money, we give you pictures of these tents, these camps, these IDP, internally displaced person camps, these tent cities. Um, so as an aside, Haitian photographer Daniel Morel sued uh, agencies for using his photographs and not giving him royalties. The settlement was $3 million just to explain how much money was involved in wow. the promotion of this disaster as like a catastrophe without any kind of parallel. So um, after the earth, so if you're, if you're making decisions based, if you're being asked the question where the money go and you're making decisions based on photo ops, you're going to do things like force people to live that don't know each other next to each other in, in, in very flimsy tents that can be ripped open. Um, so you create the conditions that of problems of security, um, violence against women, for example. Um, people that don't know one another, you disrupt their solidarity networks. Where do people share their food? Everyone I know in Haiti and Port-au-Prince shared food with neighbors, with friends, with people that went to the same church, with family. Um, and so, uh, that created a condition where which you you have these giant uh, shanty towns in the making uh, with uh, very little security and a, a long-term strategy to exit that phase. On top of that, you're making decisions about water provision. So if the question was to people, where did you get your water before the earthquake? People in the, in the camp, let's, let's even acknowledge that, that people should be living in camps, you know, because they're afraid to go back into their concrete homes because they're afraid of another aftershock. Um, so that, you know, you can have people be around their homes, you know, all of that. Let's put that aside. Let's say that they're in camps. You can still ask people, where did you get your water before the earthquake? And they would say, right over there, there's a public tap. And so you could use your, your humanitarian aid to rebuild the public water tap that was existing before the earthquake and improve it and build upon it. Instead, what, what they, they did, instead, what they did is, is, hire these politically connected two to three families, private water trucks to drive treated water and then distribute it. So the people have to, usually women have like buckets on their head, walking back to, from their water distribution. You can take photos of long lines of people waiting for food or water. So when you do that, you create problems of who has access to these rations. You know, so, um, well, humanitarian agencies would like to blame camp committees, humanitarian agencies created camp, camp committees in order to distribute aid because they, they needed to. And these are agencies that were 
the direct creation of, of the, the NGOs, modeled after NGOs, and given the ent entire power to make decisions about who gets life-saving assistance. So this is, these are basically Frankenstein's monster, if you use the word mini-me's, these are, these are direct responsibility of the humanitarian NGOs that created them in the first place. So you add to that, these, these five people make decisions about you know, up, upwards of 20,000 people uh, in some instances. Um, so basically who, who lives and who dies. Uh, and so then you add to that, that these people are mostly men and aid, the food aid is supposed to go to women you create the conditions by which you have transactional sex. Um, so for uh, uh, people living in the camps were 10 women living in the camps were 10 times more likely to be victims of sexual violence in 2010 than people living outside of the camps. So this is a direct outcome of that kind of, about these policies. How did aid destroy families? So uh, Hades before the earthquake, uh, post 2010 earthquake, Port-au-Prince, people lived in uh, in a modified Laku. Laku is a family compound where you have a different household model than we have as a norm here in the United States, where you have grandparents, uncles, cousins, you know, and, and a multi-generational family. Uh, so livelihoods are, are scattered. I make money today, you make money tomorrow, and we can survive. So that was the model. Households were five point something people big. Uh, and then you have these humanitarian agencies that don't you know, that force people in camps that don't know how to control that, don't have a centralized database, and then say to people, okay, you're going to get a tent if you're a family. So families are like, okay, we have a 17-year-old girl. She's a mother. She's, a, she's now a head of household. So we have two tents. And we'll have twice the option of getting food aid because now we're two families. So in that way, humanitarian policy divided families. So we can go on and on about like specific policies. But um, it's because the decision makers in this uh, are foreign. Decision decisions were being made by Bill Clinton as co-chair of the Interim Haiti Reconstruction Commission at the same time he's chairing the Clinton Global Initiative, at the same time that he's the UN Special Envoy for Haiti, at the same time his wife is Secretary of State. Um, they're making decisions about Haiti Reconstruction, so they build high-end tourism uh, that has been roundly critiqued as disaster capitalism. One of the reasons why Hillary Clinton lost 2016, while she lost Florida, is because of her disaster capitalism in Haiti. So that was a development reconstruction. Decisions about humanitarian aid were made inside UN logistics camp, the logistics base. So a military base inside the international airport guarded by foreign military personnel. So Languages, language of these meetings were English, which is not a language that people in Haiti spoke. So it is clear to everyone involved that Haitian people were not um, imagined as be playing a role in humanitarian assistance. They're not making decisions about humanitarian assistance. And, and so they're, they're basically treated like, you know, just a mouth to feed. Um, so this, in this way, media, uh, the disaster narrative, how, who is portrayed as victim, who is portrayed as actor, reinforces itself. If, if Haitian people are portrayed as unruly or lawless or tragic or whatever, mouth to feed and not people with intelligence, capacity, skill, you know, uh, local, local knowledge, then um, any old inter foreign intervention will do. It justifies that. So we have to pay attention to the disaster narrative. First of all, I'm blown away by what you just shared with me. Uh, just utter exclusion and disregard of Haitians' involvement in their own recovery. I, I can't help but to ask this follow-up question. Where was the Haitian government in all of this? The parliament was asked to dissolve itself in order to make way for the Interim Haitian Reconstruction Committee, or IHRC, that Bill Clinton co-chaired. The parliament was so asked Wow. So this is so only so why would this even be in the realm of imaginable? Haiti has been consistently demonized for its role in ending slavery. And that white supremacist, racist understanding of the, the world's first free black republic um, reproduces itself. You know, you have people, mainstream commentators uh, in the in New York Times. Um, you know, televangelists, 
throwing out uh, throwing out images that like Haiti is just you know ungovernable. That there's a Haitian is, is exceptionalized to use uh, Michel Rolf-Triot's term. Um, you have the right wing Heritage Foundation um, sensing red meat and as an opportunity to like the day after the earthquake says this is a great opportunity to regain U.S. dominance in the region. That was it, it used those terms. Regain U.S. dominance. And we had occupied Haiti for some time. I think it was 1915. Since, 1950, since 1915, right. Um, and so the, the process of centralization that you mentioned that Wubei Fatou mentioned began in the 1915 U.S. military occupation, um, completed by neoliberalism. So, yeah, that's where the Haitian government was. And during this like period of disaster, people, uh, the, the Clintons were rushing a set of elections and putting their thumb on the scale and selecting the next president. So Raul Peck's movie, Metal Assistance or Ricardo Seitenfuss book. Um, Ricardo Seitenfuss is a Brazilian professor. He was the special representative from the Organization of American States. He detailed a, a attempted coup against President Preval at the time. And once they were all brought to their senses, uh, then the, the objective became to force elections and Hillary Clinton, along with Bill Clinton, uh, made sure that someone that they could work with would succeed. And so that's so if your discussion with Fatou, I'll listen to it, I'm sorry I haven't had a chance to, it was about the assassination, like this, this 10 years of rule of, of, the, of that political regime was a direct result of a country that was in trauma and, and it, people not living in their homes and still in a disaster recovery period and rushing elections with foreign intervention in the get-go. Wow. So, you know, uh, you mentioned uh, Professor Robert Faton um, after... President Moise's assassination, as, as you uh, uh, pointed out, we had a podcast conversation with him. And at the close of the podcast conversation, I, as, as a person who's not Haitian, uh, uh, I told him, I said, uh, Professor Fatan, I'm sick of the media. Every time they talk about Haiti, they say the poorest nation in Western Hemisphere. The first time it was, okay, I got that. I got that statistic, if it's a true statistic. But that's the only thing they say. So that's where he started getting into the continued perception of Haiti as, as, as you know, a country that uh, once slavery was prevalent and no one ever talks about how they became independent. First black nation revolution to become an independent black nation. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you're telling me that issues from that still go on today even in earthquake mm -hmm. recovery yeah. that's that's fascinating uh i will definitely I mean, have and if you're ahead. in cal if you're in california as part of the united states you have haiti to thank for that because uh, that because the haitian revolution what uh, jefferson was was trying to negotiate passage uh, access to the new orleans port and napoleon lost the pearl of the pearl of the antilles uh, for the haitian revolution he said had the entire Louisiana as it was, a, it was one of the, was a bargain. And so that manifest destiny was a direct result of that influence. My hometown of Chicago was founded by Haitian as to be an outpost for pro uh, emancipation policy and pro Haiti foreign policy. So the fact that the U S occupation in 1915, when the world war one was happening. So the, the old world was at war, the new world takes over with the, you know, Roosevelt's big stick corollary to the, Corollary to the uh, to the Menor Doctrine. Remember that was at the height of Jim Crow racism. Yes. Well. Yeah. So, so, so these 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 are cultural aftershocks of the the ways in which uh, enslaved people had the audacity to believe that they were human and they deserve liberty, equality, and fraternity. Professor Scholler, I'm going to borrow that term from you: cultural aftershocks. I hope you haven't coined some sort of copyright on it. I love it. Cultural aftershocks. Did her, Haiti recover from the 2010 earthquake by August of 2021, some 11 years later? So because it was a private patchwork response, um, some places, yes, some places, no. Mostly Haiti is a graveyard of failed NGO projects with uh, you know, NGO signs welcoming you to it, you know, identifying a project like Gravestone. Um, the 
National Palace is not yet reconstructed as an ultimate symbol of the lack of sovereignty 11 years later. Uh, wow, 11 years later, the National, that's like the White House or the, our mm-hmm. Congress not being yeah. reconstructed. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it, is, it is a symbol of the lack of sovereignty. Um, so that, so uh, some NGOs went out of their way to apply very seriously the building code. Some NGOs you know, just did what they did what they did to keep, you know, to keep going. To keep going. Uh, is our NGOs, I'm speculating here, sir, correct me, please, uh, if I'm wrong. Are NGOs also becoming sort of a an economy on its own in Haiti where some Haitian mm-hmm. elite are, mm-hmm. elite or whatever subgroups are making money out of the NGOs presence? Yeah, I mean, it was, it's the biggest source of employment for a long time. Uh, and NGO foreign worker. So it's sort of a, it triggered what uh, Andrea Steinke called a humanitarian gentrification. So foreigners, expats, um, having upwards of $2,500 a month for their housing uh, allowance, displaced Haitian. That's a lot of money even in America. Oh yeah. It was was 10 times what I was paying from a three bedroom apartment in Port-au-Prince. So, so basically, it, it's a domino effect. You have, like, they displace the elite, who displace the middle class, who displace the working class, who displace the working poor. So rents skyrocket as a result. Um, the aid warp, NGO aid, fundamentally warped the economy in Puerto Rico. Um, and, and it is the only place where people could have any kind of income. So. Uh, was there, in any big project, uh, pork barrel politics kicks in. We have that in America too. Uh, were there overt corruptions in the aftermath of the recovery? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, were there, were uh, there investigations I, I, and prosecutions? Oh yeah. There, there, I mean, there are a couple of high profile cases, um, very sensationalist report by ProPublica in 2015 about the Red Cross, uh, a scandal that came to like seven years later, uh, about Oxfam. Uh, Oxfam? It was published in 2018 about a sex ring. Uh, Caligulan was the title uh, of the, the, the article. Um, so you're going to have, in any industry, you're going to have bad apples when, that, when you have a system that's broken and the accountability measure's not there, the accountability upward, not downward, these are going to happen. And then, so I think that the question is, is not about the gotcha journalism or focusing on scandal, the scandal, but like, look at the system itself. Look at the reward structure. We can fix the reward structure. We can change the reward structure. We can require NGOs collaborate with the government. We can require that NGOs collaborate, coordinate with each other. We can require that they have some sort of participation plan. We could fund um, coordination if we know that what succeeded. Uh, the Spanish government did fund two very effective Haitian governments, governmental agencies to coordinate aid. Uh, they, they funded the DNEPA, the Water and Sanitation, and they funded the, um, the NGO Registry Office. So they succeeded. You know, everyone, you know, so those, those are positive examples of foreign aid, right? They're, yes, but, but they're, the, they're the, yeah. I, I published an article in Disasters in 2014 looking at water and sanitation, and there are impacts. You know, so the, the quickest way to say this is that NGOs by themselves do not add services to where they're not already providing services unless the government tells them to do so. And the government did tell them and the NGO stepped up. It's a quick way of saying um, lots, lots of statistical data. Uh, yeah. um, so, um, okay. so yeah, it, there's a campaign now to raise minimum standards for Haiti. Um, you could Google minimum sta- new minimum standards for Haiti. They're uh, in a group of, of NGOs or activist organizations are asking uh, NGOs who, who are collecting donations for Haiti to, to take the pledge uh, and to do better, to you know, to, to stop disaster porn, to treat Haitians re- respectfully, use respectful language, respect Haitian leadership, coordinate. Um, Used respectful language. That needs to be said, actually. Yeah. You, you, um, I just yesterday in my class for the Caribbean, we, we did a, a discussion about um, representations of Haiti. You just, you just Google it. What images you see? What, 
what language wow. are you saying? If, you, if you're saying poorest of the hemisphere without saying why it became the poorest exactly, of the hemisphere. Exactly, yeah. Failed state. It's a, it's a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. It is. Uh, we'll be back after a short break to talk about two issues that you brought up, Professor uh, Scholler, Haitian women and society. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Professor Scholler, in your research, you place emphasis on Haitian uh, women. Uh, why is that? For example, you produced a documentary titled Poto Mitan, Haitian Women, Pillars of the Global Economy. That's a big title, Pillars of the Global Economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so ha- Haitian women are uh, said to be Poto Mitan. Uh, which is what, does that, a, what does that mean? It was, it was a term uh, the derived from uh, traditional ancestor worship, voodoo. Uh, I, I like to call it traditional ancestor worship because people have immediate stereotypic understandings when you hear the word voodoo. It's voodoo. Um, so uh, it's voodoo. It's not voodoo. Is voodoo? Right. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Right. The word voodoo became a um, uh, a boogeyman to scare people during the U.S. occupation during Jim Crow. So we need to challenge that, that the way people say it, ancestor worship. So there are these spaces, and there's a central pillar holding up the peristyle or the temple. So women are said to be the potomitan, the central pillar holding up the, the family, um, the community, and the country. So um, I I see. Did my, I did my dissertation research on women NGOs and the impact of funding on women's NGOs, uh, and in tr- in. You know, if you t- Angela Davis, Horton Spillers, uh, Christina Sharp, uh, Sadia Hartman, folks that write about uh, plantation slavery, um, all have said the same thing that women uh, were given roles of heads of household as property. They were not only worked in the fields, that they were forced to reproduce. And so that was the only biological relation that was allowed to happen because slave owners were afraid of people having bonds with each other. So they've made a point to separate uh, kids from their fathers. And so you have the Daniel, you have the Patrick Moynihan report, the, the pathologization of the black family. Um, but you know, in the Caribbean, there's a tradition of matrifocality or the uh, household is headquartered or headed by- Matrifocality. I want to yeah. I, I repeat what you just taught me to make sure I got it correctly. During the French colonial period, or maybe even after that, I don't know, during the time when there was slavery, Haitian women and men were allowed to, to be together for reproductive purposes only. They, they did not have emotional uh, connections. They didn't co have. No, they were not, uh, right. They were encouraged. Wow. They were encouraged. I mean, that in the logic of human enslavement to reproduce is to create is to you know increase your property to create another human being that is also your property so slave owners encouraged in many cases raped women um so i mean the, this this is systematic on the plantation so black feminist scholarship has thrown that discussion of daniel patrick moynihan and others uh, senator um you know, and you know, the idea of the welfare queen and, and really challenge that. So that is a long way of saying that it is a cultural reality in the, in the Caribbean as uh, descendants of plantation slavery, that there, that you have uh, women do play a, a role in society that that is central. Um, and so uh, that was clear to me back in 2001 when I first started my research. Um, and why Haitian women? Because Haitian women's organizations, women's organizations, are much more tend to be more 
aware, uh, more conscious of the contradictions and of the the, um, the negotiation about being funded. You know, so the, the distinction between being activist and service organization, NGOs as a field, um, basically professionalized, and you know, the world neoliberalism basically through um, it was represented steroids for the NGO system. You know, you've got uh, in the 1990s, the number of NGOs working in multiple countries, uh, more than quintuples. Uh, you have- In the 1990s, direct, were there NGOs in Haiti as well? Yeah, they, yeah. the NGOs, so you can chart when, when they come, eh, disaster events like Hurricane uh, Hazel mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the 1950s, you know, these, these, these are punctuated moments where you have lots of organizations coming to the country like CARE and Catholic Relief Service, um, CRS and CARE. Um, and every moment of crisis in Haiti, the, the end of Duvalier uh, in 86, 86 the, the democracy, the coup d'etat in 91, the earthquake, the 2000, you know, all these moments you see a, a spike in, in NGO presence in Haiti. So women's organizations tend to be more conscious of, you know, the, of, the, of their mission. And not be involved in a mission drift like NGOs, international NGOs tended to become, they've they become parallel governments in many places in the world. So uh, that's why I wanted to study the impact of studying women's NGOs in particular. So the film, Otomita, is a result of part of my commitment to decolonize anthropology and to give back in a meaningful way a gesture of solidarity uh, to people in my research. So Did you say decolonize anthropology? Is that correct. what you said? Uh, okay. Bay, Bay Harrison, uh, an anthropologist who works in the Caribbean uh, had a 1991 book titled Decolonizing Anthropology. Mm -hmm. uh, and I take that, and many of us take that very seriously. Uh, and part of my role is to make my research uh, uh, as a tool, as working with, not, not on a community. And so what priorities do people have? And so it's participatory action research, but it's a tool to decolonize the field. You know, I is asking people, what solidarity gesture do you want? And one of the women, one of the women's groups in the study, wanted me to make a documentary. So that's what happened. Do women, and I think the, I know the answer to that from the first segment in which we talked about uh, women lining up to get water uh, provided by NGOs. Do women continue to play a central role in Haiti's society? Mm -hmm. So. Um, in a piece that I wrote called which is a name of a lyric of soon-to-be president Michel Martelly, um, uh, which says, don't touch the women like that. It's an article I wrote in Feminist Studies. The title, means don't, the, 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 the title means don't touch the women like that? Is that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, it is also chapter four of the book that you referred to, Humanitarian Aftershock. Um, I'm talking there about um, the ways in which discourses. So you, if you have a humanitarian policy, that's a policy, and you have discourse. Like policies and, and discourses work together uh, to demonize black men and to say that fathers are absent. Guess what? Fathers will become absent if, if you don't give them a seat at the table. So humanitarian policies reproduce the very discourse. So, this, uh, so it's, a, it's, again, another cycle that these discourses reinforce the policy, which reinforces the discourse. So um, food aid, as I mentioned, that, that, that aid, food aid and, and, re, and rehousing or re, uh, relocation assistance was given by men to women uh, in so many cases that, you know, these were opportunities. When you say given uh, by foreign men to women? Well, so the NGOs create these mini-me's of the camp committees who are dominated by men. And so you have power to decide who gets this this ration cart or this relocation assistance. So lots of cases which these uh, these men, you know, abused that role um, and demanded sex in return. Um, so, oh, wow. uh, yeah, a Haitian feminist scholar, Sabine Lamour, uh, talks about the ways in which this discourse of Potomita serves to um, uh, render the state uh, not responsible uh, for providing for its citizens uh, and basically turning men into, you know, absent fathers. So uh, it's a, it's a, it's 
So yes, food aid since the, the World Food Program, uh, since Women in Development in the 1970s, uh, feminist intervention in, in uh, how NGOs do their business, uh, good policies, well-intentioned policies. If, if you're not attuned to the material conditions, the cultural realities and the worldviews and the power structures that you put in place and the discourses, these good policies can have these work really negative consequences. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Scholler as we get into the perspective. Professor Scholler, what, what lessons or advice do you have for NGOs, the international community, and, 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 and uh, Haiti's government for their efforts in recovering from this two, 2021 earthquake? Yeah, so raise the minimum standards, take the pledge, you know, uh, Work with what do you mean by minimum standards? I don't, I don't appreciate so this, what that term so, means. So this sphere, there's a sphere collective that, that talks about humanitarian assistance. So they have what's called minimum standards for humanitarian assistance. People in Haiti found out about that after the earthquake in 2010, as they found out that these international institutions were not abiding by the minimum standards. Um, they so, were not? Well, it's... For example, there should be no more than 20 people that aren't related to share a toilet. Uh, and the research that I conducted with students at the State University of Haiti uh, showed that it was, you know, very far from that. You know, 273 people on average per toilet. So um, um, water provision, so participation, who's, who has a say at the table? The sphere standards were published in Creole. Uh, so it was, a, it was an educational tool. So, uh, so new minimum standards um, are... Um, like raising the floor for like what what was what Haitian people consider acceptable um, that you know no photos of people in in any indecent form you need to get their permission if you look at Haiti Google image Haiti it's always you know, going to be the negative the disaster and fine yeah. if you need to if you need to have a disaster collect money to collect funds don't use naked children or old men uh, without teeth uh, like portray people as like like with a wheelbarrow and saying we need your help and that's that's maybe more effective anyway language like of course nation and hemisphere is that are those photos something that uh haitians bristle at are they aware that those photos oh, yeah. are being oh, okay absolutely uh and and to the point where idps call themselves performer in returning space persons believe they had to sing literally sometimes literally had to sing and perform for their eight you know uh they're very very uh, sensitive to to the, the ongoing colonial oh, racism wow. that, that is heaped on Haiti. So, yeah, the new minimum standards, um, you just Google it, a pledge for new minimum standards. There's a change.org petition. There's an actual pledge itself by the HaitiResponse.org slash pledge. Um, you know, 10, 10 things that people could, the NGOs could do better, plan, plan for the long term, reinvest, invest in Haitian capacity, um, uh, and vow to hold yourself accountable to the community and invite people to hold you accountable. So these are, these are things, if, and not just like this abstract, you know, the, the Red Cross has their, uh, you know, code of conduct, uh, the sphere standard, there's all kinds of minimum standards, but this is a contract, like people sign it, like, yes, we need new minimum standards. So there's some sort of accountability structure. In place. So that's one. Almost like uh, codifying it into law that both parties are accountable. Oh, yeah. Open channels for accountability, because structurally speaking, NGOs are only accountable to their donors, which is the problem, which has been the problem, which is going to be the far problem. away, and they're distant geographically and culturally, right? Right, right. So if USAID is the funder, they're not accountable to even me as a U.S. citizen, you know, because um, people who, who make policies about foreign policy um, tend to be corporate agribusiness or, you know, military industrial complex or other sorts of elites that what's best for Raytheon is not what's best for me. What's best for Cargill or Monsanto is not what's best for my family who lost their farm in Minnesota. You know, so we have more in common with each other than we do um, with the corporate elites that, that rule us. So changing the structure in Washington, you know, 
that's a tall order. But in the meantime, USAID can fund uh, the coordination necessary. Um, there are there is a Haitian disaster network, um, so uh, follow that and respect that. Um, is that a government institution? Or, uh, yep. Okay. Yep. So yes, the president was assassinated, but the government is more than just one person. You know, I work for a government. I'm a university professor. You know, there there are functioning elements of a government, even yeah. when you have January sixth, for example, this past year. So America, we, yeah. we need to be clear about what we mean by, by government. And if you say it's all failed, then we write them out of the picture. Speaking of government, right. if the Haitian government uh, were, list, was, were you know, listening, I'm going to say were, not was, were listening to you, what advice would you give them? To uh, invest in your own capacity. I mean, I, I actually don't like to be in the position of telling the Haitian government. You know, my job is to tell what my government is up to. So, I'd That's like, a good point. I'd like, That's I'd like point. USAID to get out of the way. I mean, there, there are people that are talking about a Haitian solution. There's a commission, a social a collection of hundreds of, of civil society organizations that demand a Haitian solution where they don't want Washington to dictate what's the next president and what the calendar of the elections are, how aid is to be delivered. Yes, there is, definitely needs to be aid, but Haitian people have the capacity, they have the know-how, they have the skills, they have the training, they have the experience, they have the family connections, they have the language skills, they, and they have the right to say, here's what we want. Is this being discussed in Haiti? Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's, it appears that some of these lessons of 2010 are being learned. We're trying very hard to make sure that more lessons get out there. Are you planning to go to Haiti soon? I, uh, I was supposed to go this summer. I have a National Science Foundation career grant for five years, the last phase of which was these guides for humanitarian action in these communities that, that I've been working in. Um, so I do hope to be there because I think the final product of their research uh, is more important than ever. So I would like to, I need to negotiate all kinds of things about access, safety, logistics, and permission to go. Why have you been fascinated with Haiti? How did you start? Uh, well, I was an Amnesty International co-facilitator at my college campus during the 1991 and 94 coup. Uh, I see. Didn't learn about it in my history class. We learned about the hate of French, the Spanish, the Russian, the Mexican, the Chinese revolution, but not the Haitian revolution from Chicago, which was founded by a Haitian. Didn't know that till I was a graduate school. I didn't know that till I just talked to you. Chicago yeah. was founded by Haitians. Uh, Haitian, yeah, uh, who married a Native American woman. Um, so, Gustavo uh, was Haitian. And um, so it just sort of, and it was involved in a movement to fight racism. So, um, I just sort of like, why is it that the United States, why, why don't I know about this in Haiti? Yeah, yeah. Professor Scholler, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about Haiti, what would that be? That, that um, what happens in Haiti is more important than Haiti. Haiti has led the way uh, in human liberation and hopefully will lead the way in uh, how we as a species will survive the Anthropocene, that these struggles that we see as disconnected are in fact part of the same struggle for humanity. Nice. Professor Scholler, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome to the Peel news anytime and to our listeners if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective the opinions and statements of our guests are their own we neither agree nor disagree with them we're only interested in the perspective they provide through history at the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, 
for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the peel.news. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Appeal.News.